We'll do it live! Hello, and welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is April 2nd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you today? <laughs> I am fantastic. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> okay. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. What's going on? Well, Jeff, I don't know how you feel about your bracket. Mine, not so great. I do have one team in the Final Four. How's your Final Four? Oh, I had two. I had Virginia and Michigan State. That's not bad. I mean, it seems impossible with this Final Four that anyone would have a, a perfect Final Four, right? That that can't be. Yeah, it seems it seems unlikely. No, no, no person has a perfect Final Four. I've never met anyone who fits that description. Neil, would you like to describe <laughs> your Final Four? You know, it's doing all right. Uh, can, maybe we should just move on to talk about the tournament. <laughs> we don't have to dwell on, on certain things that make me sound incredibly egotistical. <laughs> so I should say... In case you uh, out there in the listenership uh, couldn't tell from all this chatter, in the 538 picking contest, I had the final four uh, picked uh, before the tournament. But I should say that, that that's a little bit different than the final four that I said I was going to pick that's on true. the episode mm-hmm. before, as, as Sarah kind of pointed out to me the other day. <laughs> and it's totally the result of some hardcore research I did. No, wait, I'm just kidding. It was the result of basically uh, not remembering which teams I had previously picked uh, in, in a in a test bracket uh, and kind of hastily putting the bracket together before um, minutes before tip off on yeah. the opening Thursday. So See, I was going to actually a lot give, of skill there. I was going to give myself credit here because I tore into your pick of Houston. And that's the one you changed. So I feel like... Oh, yeah. No, maybe like it seeped yeah, in, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. subconsciously. And I was like, you know, maybe maybe Houston is a bad pick. Yeah. And I, we were in the studio when you were saying all that. So I didn't have my bobblehead of Ed Oliver <laughs> sitting on top of a horse looking horse at me. His horse named Oreo. His horse named Oreo uh, <laughs> looking at me and, and saying, pick Houston. I, I just want to say, Neil, you're welcome. I... Glad to have helped out. Well, thank you. If we had any money riding on this company pool, which we totally don't, <laughs> we because don't. Wait, there's no money, no, no one just to, pride. no one took the time to uh, organize it because <laughs> that person would have been me, and I didn't feel like it. Uh, so it's my own fault <laughs> that for you're not, not getting any win. money out yeah. of it. Uh, but you know, we all have the pride and the tweets and that, so forth. And that's really... And that's you, what matters. If you have the tweets, yeah. what else do you need? You know, really what matters. There's always next year. All right. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about all the excitement from the Elite Eight of the men's NCAA tournament. We'll examine the baseball teams that should be concerned about their week one performance and those that shouldn't. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. But let's start with the tournament now that we have examined each other's Final Fours. Those Final Fours are set in the women's bracket. UConn gets Notre Dame, while Oregon meets Baylor. And on the men's side, Virginia faces Auburn, and Michigan State takes on Texas Tech. We saw some great basketball to get here, including two overtime thrillers in the men's Elite Eight. But the game of the weekend, for me anyway, was Michigan State versus Duke. 
The Spartans got a last-minute go-ahead three-pointer from Kenny Goins and held on for a one-point win over Zion Williamson and the Blue Devils. Here's Michigan State coach Tom Izzo on taking down the overall number one seed. I mean, the, the respect everybody has for Duke is, um, is why it's a big game, but I do think we beat arguably the best team in the country. Neil, is Izzo right? Is Duke actually the best team in the country? You know, maybe talent-wise, uh, certainly uh, we've been told by the media, uh, I say that as though I'm not the a member media. of that, uh, <laughs> all year long that this was the best team in the country, uh, the most talented team, had one of the best recruiting classes ever. I think it was the first team in our sort of current era uh, uh, where you can go back and look at internet recruiting trackers, the first team to land each of the top three recruits in the country uh, in R.J. Barrett. Zion Williamson and Cam Reddish. They spent eight weeks at number one in the AP poll. Uh, they were number four in the preseason, but immediately jumped up to number one. So those are all sort of like, you know, the eye test right. says this might have been the most talented team. But we should say that going into the tournament, uh, Ken Pomeroy's power ratings, which we, you know, as good stat heads tend to kind of favor, <laughs> didn't have them at number one. That was Virginia. And then, in fact, they didn't even have them at number two. That was Gonzaga going into the tournament. And they struggled pretty badly uh, when they were winning to even get to the Michigan State game. They were pretty lucky to win against Central Florida and Virginia Tech. Uh, and so our model said that Michigan State had about a 33% chance of beating Duke. Duke in that game. So it wasn't like some kind of colossal upset that you would expect when you have the other team saying like, hey, we beat a better team. You know, we beat the best team in the country. Yeah. Is maybe Izzo is falling for that. Some of that mystique of Duke more than what the pure numbers say. And, and maybe the way Izzo tends to build teams, he doesn't quite go through as much of the one and done, you know, uber talent, uh, high school recruit freshman model. Right. And so I think maybe he's trying to kind of position his program as being sort of this like underdog. It's almost like the Belichickian nobody believed in this <laughs> narrative, a little, a little of that mixed mm -hmm. in too. But I think also, you know, he's more about we get these players and we try to, um, gel together a team over the course of two, three years rather than just go out and get the best recruits each year. Sure. I mean, the spread was only a point and a half. So it's right. basically a toss up. And, and, you know, and even within that betting spread, you have the sort of baked in Duke bias where you're going to get a lot of money. That's going to pull the line down because a lot of people are going to bet on Duke. Um, so I, I don't really think it was an upset um, per se. But it is funny how it is funny how Neil's like. Well, they're the best in terms of skill at basketball, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird, right? Though because uh, I think we were all expecting this team, especially you know they they went through that period where they were missing Zion and they lost some games to North Carolina, and uh, but they got him back. They won stormed through the ACC tournament, and so I thought I think a lot of people expected them to just come out firing in the NCAA tournament. And so for them to have these sort of underwhelming close call wins mm -hmm. and then come out and, and lose, I do think that qualifies as sort of a disappointing outcome for them, given how much talent just on paper that they had and the level that when they were playing their best, they seemed to be able to achieve at various times during the season. They weren't able to sustain that with any kind of consistency, especially not in the games that mattered the most. How much was did Zion's injury contribute to that? I mean, that took that changed the makeup of the roster 
during the season didn't give them as much time to gel as some of those more experienced teams would have built over a couple of years. So I do wonder how much his injury his injury hurt them. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, Zion Williamson almost like barely touched the ball down the stretch yeah. of that loss. Uh, and a lot of people were really killing R.J. Barrett for controlling so much of the game. So maybe he... You know, there's going to be egos with these guys that come in and they're they're all sort of vying for that number one recruit spot. And so I don't know. I mean, yeah. in R.J. Barrett's mind, maybe he was like, look, I was the number one recruit uh, at various times over Zion. Like, why shouldn't I be taking these shots? And he had times in, in the season in which he had to carry yeah, Duke yeah, with Zion out. Definitely. I don't know how much psychologically kind of goes into that. You can kind of uh, tell whatever story you want in retrospect on that. But it is certainly true that we probably didn't see enough of Zion Williamson uh, sort of determining Duke's destiny in the final five minutes of that game. I love the way he's the likely number three pick in the NBA draft, and he's not the best player on his team. Right. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Because the one is also there. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, an embarrassment of riches for Duke. Well, Neil, you sort of touched on it that Michigan State builds their teams kind of differently. They started two seniors, a junior, a sophomore, and a freshman. Duke started three freshmen, a sophomore, and a junior. Jeff, how much did the Spartans' experience matter, do you think? I mean, look, I think it mattered but it, it's not like the be-all, end-all. I mean, you look at the team that lost to Middle Tennessee State um, – Mm-hmm. What was it, two years ago? I mean, that team had Denzel Valentine and Brian Forbes and Matt Costello. They were all seniors, and they had just been to the Final Four. It was like an absolutely loaded with experienced right. team, and then they lost to Middle Tennessee State as a two-seed. So, like, it's not some sort of magic bullet that is going to, you know, automatically give your team a mm-hmm. boost. But I will say that, you know, since that Duke team won with um, Winslow and Okafor and those guys, you look at the last three national championships, you look at the two Nova teams, you got last year's team as Brunson and Bridges, who are, I think are seniors. Um, you look at the North Carolina team that had Barry and Jackson and all those guys who had been around for a while and already been to a finals. And then you look at the other Nova team that's got Josh Hart and, Chris Jenkins. I mean, they were very experienced teams. So we are in a run of experience winning in this tournament, but it's hard to sort of split that off and say, this is why Duke lost and this is why um, Michigan State won Barrett's shooting aside. I guess you could argue that might have been a little experience <laughs> right. at play. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think also aside from that star-laden Anthony Davis Kentucky team that had a bunch of freshmen, it's hard to find one of these like totally stocked uh, with recruits freshman teams that won the national championship uh, even further back uh, than than the past couple years, like you were saying, Jeff. So you know, we can get into the one and done implications uh, in a second, but I do think that. In general, it does seem to have been borne out that teams that have more seasoned players tend to be the ones that actually win the championship, even in the one-and-done era, which I don't think a lot of people predicted. Right. Well, so the one-and-done rule, as you just mentioned, is is probably it's likely going away. That's kept those freshman talents like Zion in college instead of in the NBA there that first year. If that rule does, in fact, end, how much will that affect – teams like Duke and Kentucky that have used it quite a bit. 
Yeah, it does seem like Duke and Kentucky will be the kind of hardest ones hit. I went back and I looked at the five years leading up to the one-and-done rule that started in 2006. And, you know, only 10% of top 50 recruits, according to Basketball Reference, which has this, like, composite ranking, went straight to the NBA. So it's like the majority of those top recruits actually did go to college. But as you go up the ladder, you see that 36% of top 10 recruits were preps to pro guys and 50% of top five recruits were prep to pro in those mm-hmm. five years. And those are the kinds of recruits that Duke and Kentucky have been really dominating. Like Duke, like right. we said, they had three, uh, each of the top three recruits in the past year's class. There have been years where Kentucky had like, e- you know, four of the top five or something like that or, or four <laughs> of the top six went there. And so those are the types of players that'll sort of be off the board. Will that actually end up hurting the teams sort of downstream from them as much? Because, you know, if Duke and Kentucky are going to get theirs, but there's less talent sort of globally in the college game to be able to tap into, you'll be worrying about getting that 50th best player if you're like a mid-major or something, uh, or the 75th best player, and that player uh, will, will have gone to a better school, and you'll sort of be left with kind of the scraps. Right. Although if all of the level falls by sort of an equal amount, then will any of this matter? And it'll just be that, you know, Zion would have been in the NBA and that's it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not actually sure how much it will matter. And also Coach K was around way before this became a thing. I mean, like, yeah, that's also true. This is like, you know, Leitner in those days. I mean, there was always seniors playing. So like he it's not like he doesn't know how to win without, you know, five uber freshmen coming in each year. Um, I, I think in some ways, I don't know about Calipari. <laughs> I was, I was going to say both of them, but I'm not really sure. Now that I think about Calipari, his teams always do seem like freshman heavy teams. I think Coach K, you know, they could have better results with it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, and it's not like seniors go undrafted in the NBA now. There are seniors, there are people who play all four years and still get drafted and still or st- and still play in well, the yeah, NBA. Yeah, like your buddy healed type yeah. guys or yeah, whoever. Yeah. I thought you were saying your buddy healed. My buddy, yeah. <laughs> you, you are friends with Buddy Healed. I am. Little Great guy. Fact. Great yeah. guy. <laughs> so it's not like this completely changes the talent levels, I, I think. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit overblown. Well, so in these four Elite Eight games, the younger team only won once, which was Virginia. That seems sort of interesting to me. So maybe experience is playing a role at at least this year, if not always. Michigan State has a 54% chance to beat Texas Tech on Saturday, according to our model, and a 28% chance to win it all. But let's talk about the odds of the rest of the Final Four. Jeff, what about Michigan State's opponent, Texas Tech? It's a fine university in Lubbock, Texas. (laughs) I think it's in a dry county. So that's a knock if you're thinking of going to Texas Tech. Other than that, um, I don't really have that many nice things to say. They play good defense. It's a if you if you like um, block shots and shot clock violations and um, <laughs> who doesn't? Passes that sounds deflected, great to me. Passes deflected off a defender and out of bounds and possibly reviewed. I mean, that's the type of basketball. Um, go for I, I mean look I, I do think Michigan State is a little more balanced um, I think that Texas Tech is in every game because of their defense so I have no reason right. not to believe it will come down to the you know last few possessions but ultimately like I, I think their offense will be their downfall eventually but who knows I, I, I say that <laughs> I think I've said that for like the last three games Neil what about Auburn 
Well, Auburn is sort of the polar opposite of Texas Tech, which is like this amazing defensive team. Uh, in fact, Texas Tech is the number one defense in the country, according to Pomeroy's efficiency mm-hmm. stats. And they're only the 30th best offense. If you flip that around, Auburn has the sixth best offense, but only the 39th best defense. Oh. In each case, it's this imbalanced team in the case of Texas Tech and Auburn facing the very balanced uh, Virginia and Michigan State. Both of those teams rank in the top 10 on both sides of the ball. And so for Auburn, I think it's just all about scoring. And if you watch that game uh, in which they closed out Kentucky, it was just about giving the ball to their guards, basically, and asking them to win the game for them. Bryce Brown and Jared Harper, I think, combined for 50 points in mm, that game. Yeah. Uh, and they just sort of took turns. There were times in which Bryce Brown you know, was just taking threes, I think, early in the game and, and knocking down everything. He had a play where he like saved the ball to himself out of bounds and then had the presence of mind to like step back behind the three-point line in the <laughs> corner and knock down a three. Yeah. And, and then Jared Harper was just completely in control late in that game. And so, you know, they do have the injury to Chuma Okeke, mm-hmm. who uh, averaged 12 points for them during uh, the season per game. Um, but it does seem like as long as they have Brown and Harper and they get into one of these like kind of shootout type of contests, they have a chance. Uh, and I, j- I just want to say that I loved seeing Charles Barkley <laughs> Like in the studio, the amount of like Auburn gear yeah. increased, I think, incrementally yeah. as the, as yeah. the tournament yeah. went on. Like maybe he had like one stuffed tiger next to him during Auburn's like first game. But then as they were on the cusp of the final four, he was like that whole side of the table was filled right. with all kinds of Auburn things. And so I don't know. It was great to see, you know, the, the biggest fan of that program you know, be there to kind of see it happen um, and, and unfold in front of him. So I'm yeah. kind of rooting for Auburn uh, <laughs> because I do like to see these teams that traditionally aren't basketball powerhouses. Like that said, I think Virginia is going to win. Okay, well, we'll do on. predictions in a second. Um, but I did love that Barkley called the win over Kentucky the greatest day in Auburn basketball history, which presumably includes all of his, his days, days in Auburn basketball history. So that was yeah. that was pretty great. Um, Jeff, what about uh, Auburn's opponent? in Virginia. Look, I think Auburn's going to win this game. Uh, we, I know you said let's hold off on the predictions, but I'm ready for the predictions right now. Um, I think, you <laughs> okay. know, we've seen this happen with Virginia where they, you know, if the way um, Edwards was going off for Purdue, mm-hmm. and I think Kyle Guy really saved them, and he just matched them shot for shot. So, like, you know, you have this guy who's absolutely unconscious hitting every three. Usually that, like, will bury a team. You'll you'll fall down. You'll go down to, like, a, you know, 14-2 to two run, and, and you'll be down 10 all of a sudden. And we've seen this team, um, the way to beat them, you know, we saw last year when they lost as a one seed is if, if they get in a hole early, they're really not good at catching up. They just, that's not what they do. They, they drain the shot clock in every possession, and they, you know, essentially try to keep it as few possessions as possible. So if they're in a scenario where they all of a sudden have to, you know, not only match Auburn three for three, they have to also produce stops on the other end. I mean, I I could see them being in trouble. And yet they've come... They've come back every time in this tournament. They have managed to come back. And they haven't been in as huge of holes as they were with UMBC. But still, that is a little bit... Maybe they've learned a little bit from that and and have figured out how to manage that because it, it, that has I have considered them out many times during this tournament and they keep coming back and it's very surprising. 
And they scored 80 points. I know it was in overtime, right. but 80 points out of a Virginia team is yeah. like, you know, almost, I, I shouldn't say unheard of, but it's a very large number for them. Um, but I think you have a great point, Jeff, about Auburn, which had the most threes made of any team in the whole country this season uh, and just seems to be able to kind of bury you with these mm-hmm. runs that just come off of like you know they'll get two or three open threes and suddenly you're down by double digits against them doesn't seem like virginia is necessarily as good of a matchup for that particular you know to fight off that particular um attribute that auburn seems to have yeah that's that's a good point just look at who they've beaten in march alone you know kentucky north carolina kansas tennessee twice florida i mean they they're by far the hottest team in the country. I know we I know we don't speak of such matters in empirical minded <laughs> stat savvy five thirty eight. Sure. Okay, so you think Auburn is gonna be yes. Virginia. Who is your national champion? Michigan State. <laughs> I, wow. I, I wanna pull, if Auburn didn't have injury if they didn't have the injury issue, um I, I would I would back them to win the national championship, but that does worry me, especially against Michigan State. Yeah. Neil, who's your national champion? Well, I'm going to have to pick who I originally picked uh, weeks ago. So I'm kind of at a disadvantage here, guys. Um, but uh, I'm Yes, gonna... we feel terrible <laughs> yeah, for you, you should, with your you perfect really Final feel, Four. You <laughs> feel bad for me. So I had Virginia beating Auburn on the one side of the bracket. I had Michigan State uh, beating Texas Tech. And then I had Virginia beating Michigan State in the final. And... I'm a little bit tempted if I, if I did have it as a do-over to take Auburn over Virginia and and basically replicate what Jeff said. Um, but you know, I'm just gonna stick with uh, mm-hmm. stick with the horse I rode into town on. <laughs> um, okay, um, <laughs> I am gonna take Texas Tech. I I have been very impressed, and I saw a lot of Texas Tech during the regular season. I've been pretty impressed with their consistency during the tournament and their defense. You know, defense wins championships. I, I like, I like, <laughs> I like, de- I like uh, shot clock violations. I find them very exciting. So, though Texas Tech only has a 22% chance, according to our model, to win it all, I'm going to take them. The model does say Virginia. So, Neil, if you're sticking with that, you are in good company. All right, let's leave that there. Let's get a quick word from this week's sponsor, LinkedIn. When it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on skills and background, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. You quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. So post a job today at linkedin.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E, and get $50 off of your first job post. Um, Neil, what is that code again? It's pain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would invite all people to go check out LinkedIn and use that code. Uh, and uh, it, I can assure you, though, that I didn't have anything to do with them using that. Is but for it, now, is it pain with an E? It is pain with an E. Just think of our co-host Neil Payne when you're going uh, to think make of the your perfect hire. final four. 
and think of think of pain and with your an perfect e. candidate. <laughs> that's right. That's LinkedIn.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, on to the baseball season. MLB is just a few games old, so it's time for that age-old baseball tradition. Fans freaking out over their team's early performances, both hot and cold. The Red Sox, Yankees, Indians, and Braves have all struggled out of the gate, leaving some to believe that the sky may in fact be falling. Here's Andy Bunker on Atlanta's 92.9 The Midday Show on the rough start for the Braves, who are 1-4. and four. I'm frustrated with the Braves because I think that the the issues that they have are issues that they could have dealt Self, with. They're self-inflicted. They're self-inflicted yes. issues. Exactly. Yes. It's stuff that they, they chose not to address. Neil, how worried should Braves fans be? Well, you know, normally we would caution to don't read too much into small samples. <laughs> it's a 162-game season. Uh, so, you know, any team, even good ones, are going to go through a 1-3 and three stretch uh, to, to start the season. I guess they were 0-3 before they beat the pants off the Cubs Monday night. <laughs> um, but I do think there are certain things to be worried about with this Braves team. Uh, and one of the big things is their pitching staff, which is uh, projected right now – According to uh, the esteemed Fangraphs, we we love their um, projections. Mm-hmm. They're projected to have the ninth fewest pitching war of any team in baseball this season. Uh, that's wins above replacement, basically how much value you're getting out of your pitching staff. And they have a bunch of guys who are hurt. Kevin Gaussman uh, was hurt in spring training. He's going to come back soon, but mm-hmm. maybe not all that soon, and who knows what kind of condition he'll be in. Uh, Mike Fultonewicz, also injured, and and his time frame is even further out. The right. Mike Soroka, who is this great pitching prospect for them that kind of broke in last year, he's injured. Uh, they also have A.J. Minter and Darren O'Day in the bullpen, uh, which is a special problem area for them. They're also injured. And so, if you look at this team, they have a lot of question marks on pitching, fewer on the position players side. But uh, the thing for me that comes back to, and maybe we talked about this before the season started, is this team made uh, an immense amount of revenue last season. They were in a newish park and they had this unexpected uh, division championship. And their uh, their own ownership group described the revenue that they made as quote astounding, which you don't often hear. <laughs> You're uh, not supposed to say that MLB out loud. Owners right? yeah. say out loud. Uh, and this team actually reduced its payroll, uh, despite all that, uh, in in this bid to defend its NL East title. And you know the the reasons that they gave were you know almost like they're on a timetable, they're on a schedule, and they weren't quite ready in their five year plan to ramp up the spending yet but they will you know they promise that they will when the time is right and i think that that is kind of a mistake we've seen mm-hmm. a lot of these teams that seem to be set up with a lot of great prospects sort of take this like laissez-faire like oh you know we're just gonna wait and see and right. pay it out and we've got plenty of years in front of us right. with this core to take advantage of strategy and i think it doesn't work more often than it does but also if it happens, that's good. That's like, the goal. Yeah, it happened for them last year. It doesn't. Yeah, they won the division. It's not like were, you right. you lose points by right. doing it before when you're supposed to, or right. it's cheating to spend yeah. and kind of make it happen. Right. If you get there early, that's like you won. So keep going. You're not tanking anymore. So I don't understand 
why they are not acting like, oh, hey, now we're going to be good instead of, oh, wait, we got there early. Now we are going to go back to being bad. We're going like, to take our time. not reading the room very well. I mean, you you wrote about the Indians where they were like looking <laughs> around the rest of the AL Central and they're like, yeah, we, we don't really need to spend money. This is we've got free wins everywhere, which yeah, we're rude, good, by yeah. the way, <laughs> wins everywhere. Um, but the NL East was the, in some ways the opposite. You got right, a lot right, of young right. stars coming up on the Nationals, obviously, and then the Phillies getting Harper and the Mets spending a lot of money. And um, to it w- didn't seem like the right division to just you know rest on your laurels if your laurels are essentially one season. <laughs> Right. Well, and if you were su- you're surprised by what you got out of your young core, and so build on it. That just seems like sort of the obvious answer there. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the NL East, I mean, I think we have a little bit also of a instructive uh, example. Maybe not quite the same idea, but this is the same division where the Washington Nationals were way out in first place, and and they decided they were going to shut down Steven Strasburg late in a season mm-hmm. and not even use him in the postseason because they were like, "Look, his long term health's more important. We've got this great core of young players, and we're we're going to have chances. We're going to win World Series down the right. line. Why try to win? Why why?" risks uh, you know his arm and go over this innings limit uh, to to try to win one in the here and now they haven't won one you know and and uh, a lot of other circumstances have kind of gotten in the way of that but it just i think it needs to be drilled into these teams that when you have a chance to win here now today you take advantage of it because yeah. as we've seen in baseball the landscape can shift yeah. under teams we're going to talk about the cubs again in a few minutes uh and their start to the season but they're another example of a team that seemed like they had everything out in front of them uh, when they were winning the World Series in 2016. Things can change on you in a hurry yeah. in baseball, and I don't think that um, a lot of these GMs necessarily fully appreciate that. No, nothing is nothing is guaranteed. Well, so the Braves are an example of um, of people freaking out about a bad start. What about people freaking out over a good start? Jeff, I know you're high on Christian Yelich. Um, he should just be awarded the MVP trophy right now, right? Did you say um, Christian Yelich or Pete Alonzo? <laughs> oh, you've got a new front runner. <laughs> hey, I've already moved on from Yelich. He didn't hit a home run the other day, so, you know. Total bum. Slumping. He didn't do it in five straight Four games. Yeah, that, is, that was unfortunate. Yelich was – it's interesting because if you if you travel in, in these sort of fantasy nerd circles, like I've I've sometimes dabbled – Everyone obviously pegged him as an obvious regression case because everything he did last year was so abnormally. I mean, we don't really talk about this enough, but he came very close to winning the triple crown. Yeah. It's like yeah. two home runs and one RBI. Yeah. Um, you know, and he batted, what, like 370 in September? And, you know, I, I think a lot of people saw his numbers and thought he would regress, but I maybe, maybe that's... I mean, look, this guy was a huge prospect, so... Um, and the, Milwaukee's only paying him like I think seven million dollars a year. They got him, you know, when Florida was having a fire sale. So um, it, when it really Florida was having a fire sale, you're going to have to be more, more specific. specific than that. <laughs> when they were having one of their, you know, annual fire sales, it was it was a Memorial wow. Day sale or something, Labor Day. <laughs> they're, they're like a sleepies. <laughs> You know, I think one of the reasons why Yelich was pegged as a regression candidate is that he had a 
373 batting average on balls in play last year, which was like way higher than his usual norm. Uh, and people were like, oh, he's not going to do that again. He, he won't hit 326. Maybe he'll hit like, you know, 280, 290 again. Well, this year he's hitting 412 and he only has a 273 batting average oh, wow. on balls in play. So it's not luck. I mean, it's not luck in that regard. Right. We should also say that 57% of his fly balls have left the yard so far this year. That's a little lucky, but he's drastically reduced his strikeout rate. Uh, he's improved his walk rate. Uh, at age 27, it's almost like his age 26 season could be just a prelude to his actual peak season, and that's a little bit scary because he had 7.6 war yeah. uh, last season and won the MVP. But again, we're basing it's this five off games. of five yeah. games. <laughs> exactly. Maybe need to pump the brakes yeah. <laughs> But Neil, the fly ball... Um home run ratio because you know travis Sawchick, our baseball writer 538 wrote about this last year it was it was abnormally high last year i mean the guy really doesn't hit fly balls he's a little bit of a throwback um he's not one of these guys trying to lift the ball um with these dramatic uppercuts every every time he you know approaches the plate and that's another big change this year yeah, like his his ground ball to fly ball ratio last year was 2.2, which means that he was hitting 2.2 grounders for every fly. This year, it's 0.6. So he's actually hitting more fly balls oh, than grounders for the first time in his career. And that number uh, during sort of the time in which he was not hitting as many home runs as people wanted him to, like in 2015, when he only had seven home runs and 476 at bats. He hit 4.2 ground balls for every fly ball. So that trend, you know, uh, if we want to talk about the fly ball revolution, he might be now the new poster child for that if he sort of keeps this up over the whole season. A guy who went from hitting 4.2 grounders for every fly ball is now hitting 0.6 grounders for every fly ball. That's a pretty dramatic shift. Well, if he hits four home runs of his seven hits, uh, every seven hits, that would be be a record. Yeah, Yeah. that seems like a it seems like he'll be the MVP. (laughs) Well, so let's go through a few of the teams that have either over or underperformed so far in this young season, according to our ELO ratings, and try to figure out if these small sample sizes are real. Jeff, the Red Sox started one and four, dropped nine points in ELO. What's up with them? I, I'm not concerned about the Red Sox. Okay. So, I, I mean, they just had a horrible turn through the rotation. I mean, every one of them got roughed up. And, and you know, I think the track record of Sale and Porcello and some of these guys is, is strong enough that I, I'm not too concerned. They'll be fine. Okay. All right, Neil, what about the Phillies? They started 3-0 and and are up five points in ELO. I think I'm uh, uh, higher on them than I was at the start of the season just because you see who's actually kind of doing some of the damage for them. Uh, all of the talk was about Harper, but now you see Andrew McCutcheon is hitting some home runs early. If he... We don't talk about McCutcheon enough. He Mm -hmm. has always been one of the most underrated players in baseball, but I think even more recently, uh, he sort of had one down year, and we're like wrote him off for some reason uh he's been really good the past few years and he's looking really good this year and if he hits an approximation of what he was doing just a couple of years ago with the pirates he i think has the potential to elevate this team a mm. lot higher than the projections thought it could and we were joking about this idea of like what if bryce harper's not just not the best player in the phillies what if he's not the second best right. or the third best <laughs> or the fourth best that could be spun as sort of a knock on harper if he has another year like he had last year but it could also be spun as like how scary are the phillies yeah. if mccutcheon is hitting and hoskins and real mudo and all these guys they have you look down their lineup and you're like 
they got a lot of guys. Yeah, you know? Harper, Harper might not have been the best acquisition yeah. for the Phillies this year, which is pretty scary. Jeff, what about the Seattle Mariners? They started six and one. They're up eight points in Elo. They took three of four from the Red Sox, and they won those two against Oakland in Japan. I think the Mariners consistently get uh, kind of overperform their talent level. It, it seems to become a, a hallmark there. Um, it seems like every year I'm like, you know, the Mariners only a few games out of the playoffs. And, um, you know, they don't usually make the playoffs, but uh, they're always right in it. I don't, um, I don't think this team really has the pitching at all, especially the bullpen. The bullpen's kind of a mess. Um, their closer, Strickland's already on the DL, and I, they don't really have that many, if any, arms um, that I've heard of in their bullpen. <laughs> um uh, and they're starting, you know, starting pitching, obviously, you know, losing packs and, and things like that. I, I think they've, there's similar problems to the Braves, but I, it is impressive, um, what they've been able to do to at least stay relevant, um, without really much star power. Yeah. It's nice for their fan base to have a, a good opening, especially when we sort of thought they were tanking. And so to win, to win is nice. Winning is good. Neil, what about the Indians? They started two and two. They're down three points in ELO. You know, I'm not overly concerned about them um, just because, like, the talent is there. It's a little bit of a rough start. Uh, they have some guys who are injured, like Francisco Lindor has been out of the lineup um, since February. Uh, and so Jason Kipnis is also hurt. Uh, Danny Salazar, uh, if you want to kind of lump him in there. Um, so, you know, I think once they get their full lineup back, Obviously, if they continued to play their opening day lineup, which you looked at that, um, uh, I think it was against the Twins. It was. And it was just like, this is the, this is the lineup they're going to go I with, really? I thought it was a great lineup for them. Yeah, I it think was they good for use you. It all you the enjoyed time. it. Um, Seems fine. But I think when this team is at full strength, I think they'll be fine. All right. Jeff, what about the Cubs? They started one and three. They are down three points in ELO. That is a team I'm a little bit concerned about. Just because. Talk about another team that really didn't do anything this offseason. You Darvish, who was their big purchase um, last year, he just looks lost. I mean, ever since that World Series where he was apparently tipping his pitches or not, um, he hasn't been able to do anything. And what, seven walks in his first outing? And um, I don't know what kind of pitcher Cole Hamels is. I don't know about their bullpen, which has really struggled early on. Even if all those guys like Rizzo and Brian are hitting and they're back hitting in the way they were when they won the World Series, like I still wonder if they have the pitching to make a lot of noise. Neil, how about the Orioles? They started three and one and are, and are up five in Elo. Well, you know, yeah, that's the team that I uh, wrote about in preseason <laughs> as the most anonymous team in uh, baseball, maybe in baseball history. Right. Uh, and and all they did was they came out and they took uh, two of three against the New York Yankees. Uh, but I still think. You know, this any team can beat the the worst team in baseball can beat the best team in baseball uh, on, you know, two out of three games with some regularity. Uh, I think it was more indicative when they lost that first game seven to two than the next couple games that they won. Uh, and they only beat Toronto six to five uh, yesterday. So I'm I'm not thinking that this team is suddenly going to be a contender. And I don't think they want to be. I mean, some of these <laughs> like, you know, you have to kind of ask. Uh, I think in the Mariners case is another one where it's like 
they've they've started far better than they thought they could, and now you're like, well, what do we do now? Should we continue to try to kind of tank? We weren't supposed to be good. This is supposed to be a rebuilding year, right. and so I think if the Orioles start winning more games than they have, also they might actually be kind of mad and be like, knock it off, guys. <laughs> Okay, well, it's a long season. Small samples of games just don't matter all that much. Yes, there are areas of concern for a lot of teams right now, but but maybe no one should panic or make their plans for October quite yet. Let's move on to our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, the rabbit hole belongs to Neil. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) This is a true rabbit hole. And it started when on Sunday, a single player made his MLB pitching debut. You might not think that that would be a big deal, but this player, Elvis Luciano of the Toronto Blue Jays, became the first player in baseball history born in the 2000s. To play in the big leagues. He was born on February 15th, 2000. What were you guys doing, might I ask, on February 15th, 2000, do you think, while Elvis Luciano was coming into this world? You know what? I can tell you that it was a Tuesday. I actually. Wow, you looked it up. No, I remember it. It was the day after Valentine's Day, my senior year. I, I, rem- I remember the day. This is right after the um, Rams won the Super Bowl, I believe. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. Over the Titans. So we were probably still talking about that, that big, you know, Kevin Dyson stop. This was right before I learned to hate uh, Michigan State basketball. So oh, I was yeah. still, it was a, it was a yeah. completely different era for me. Your life <laughs> would change in, in so many ways yeah. very soon. Uh, I was probably playing uh, basketball for my eighth grade team uh, oh. at this time. You know, we have this player from the 2000s, mm-hmm. but with Ichiro's retirement, there's only one active player who was born before the 80s. Can you name this player? Who was born before the 80s? So in the 70s? Yeah, born in the 70s. Is Jamie Moyer still pitching? No. Jamie Moyer was actually born in the Bartolo? 60s. No, not Bartolo. Bartolo was born in the 50s. Technically, he, he is unsigned, which we will touch on later. We need to fix that. Uh, I'll just give you the answer. It is Oakland A's reliever Fernando Rodney, oh. who played for Sarah's Twins yeah, uh, he did. somewhat just recently. Just last year, yeah. yeah. Friend of the podcast. Friend of course. Of the We're going to have to have him on and tell us what it's like to be the lone representative of the 1970s in Major League Baseball. Here's another fact for you guys. So all but 16 of the players in Major League Baseball right now are technically millennials. I'm using the term, uh, the definition of the term according to Pew, who says that Anybody born between 1981 and 1996 is a millennial. Mm. So you got nine players who are too old to be millennials in Major League Baseball and seven, including Elvis Luciano, who are too young. I guess they are uh, Gen Z, which is another astonishing factoid. I went back and I looked at um, some of factoids about the uh, the first players born from various other decades. So the first player born in the 1990s to debut in Major League Baseball was Starlin Castro. He debuted on May 7th, 2010. That was when Elvis Luciano was 10 years old. (laughs) The first player born in the 1980s to make his debut was Albert Pujols. On April 2nd, 2001, Elvis Luciano was one year, one month, and 19 days old. And I found it interesting that these kind of decade debut players are getting younger. Pujols was 21 when he became the first player from the 80s to debut. Castro was 20. Luciano just turned 19 44 Mm. days ago. Wow. 
and the first player born in the 1970s to make his debut was longtime White Sox lefty Wilson Alvarez. He was mm. born on July 24th, 1989. When Elvis Luciano was but a twinkle in his parents' eyes, he wouldn't be born for another 10 years, 6 months, and 23 days. <laughs> now, at the same time that this is happening, uh, to sort of double down on the, the depression of feeling old for, for those of us that cover baseball, um, MLB also became the first league to not feature any active players who played in the 1990s. They That's have, amazing. To they me. have a player who was born in the 2000s, but no one who played in the 90s. Last year, there were two, Adrian Beltre and, as you mentioned, Jeff, Bartolo Colon. <laughs> but Beltre retired over the offseason, and although Colon says he wants to continue pitching at age 45, he'll turn 46 in May. Uh, right now, he remains unsigned. He had a 5.78 ERA last season, so it might be the end of the road. You know he's going to end up on some, on some team. I would season, like to right? see him come in for the he Mets. Has to. If, yeah, the, yeah. if the Mets can bring up Tim Tebow by the end of the season, which some <laughs> you could see the writing on the wall that that might happen, probably will happen, they can bring in Bartolo for one more uh, go around. Right. So, looking at other sports, the NFL last season had Phil Dawson. He played in the 90s, but his contract expired after the season and he made only 62.5% of his field goals so it might be the end of the line for him but the saving grace is that Adam Vinatieri 46 year old kicker for the Colts uh, was solid as ever last season and he signed a one year extension in January so he'll be around for one more year to carry the torch of players who played in the 90s uh, Vinatieri's famously old ex-teammate Tom Brady debuted on November 23rd, 2000. So this is one old guy exercise that he doesn't apply toward. <laughs> and finally, I want to talk about the NBA. Uh, so Dirk Nowitzki played in the 90s, uh, but he is scoring a career-low 6.5 points per game this season. He hasn't ret- ruled out a return next year, but there are betting odds on whether he'll return or not, which is weird. Oh my and they favor him retiring. But the saving grace is Vince Carter, who is 42 and on the Atlanta Hawks right now. He said that he wants to play one more season and he might still have value to some team. He's making 40% of his threes this year. Uh, and so it seems possible, at least, that the NBA would also continue to have at least one player from the 90s to play. And I could talk about the NHL. They have a bunch of guys, including Joe Thornton, Zdeno Chara. Guys who played in the 90s, I don't really have time or the inclination to talk about them. But that is the end of my rabbit hole that started with Elvis Luciano's uh, debut as an extremely young child. He's playing in Major League Baseball as a child. Thank you, Elvis, for making us feel very old. Thank you, Vince Carter, for making us feel very young. All right. I think that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday, listeners. This is a new podcast again, so if you like what you heard, please do subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.